Welcome to Shelf Logic, the official podcast of the Maricopa County Library District. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Shelley, and I'm one of the librarians with the Maricopa County Library District. Today, we're exploring an amazing location, the Southwest Wildlife Conservation Center, which helps animals of the Sonoran Desert in a number of different ways. I do want to take a moment to let you know about our summer reading program. With our summer reading program, you can read absolutely anything that you want. Fiction, nonfiction, audiobooks, ebooks, Facebook, emails. If you're reading for fun or you're reading for work, we count everything. So I definitely recommend that people sign up to participate. If you haven't done a lot of reading in the past, this is a great way to increase your reading. If you are already a voracious reader, this is a great way to be rewarded for what you're already doing. Some of the prizes this year include free tickets to the Phoenix Mercury, coupons to restaurants, a free day pass to a state park, and one of the prizes that we're so happy to bring to the community is a free book at a thousand points, which is really just 20 minutes a day of reading. Now we're part of the way through July already, but the good news is that you can count any reading you may have done from June 1st forward. And the program does go until August 1st. So definitely take the opportunity to sign up today. There is a link right on the library's homepage. And with the summer reading program, you can also collect secret codes, which will give you bonus points in the program. And today's secret code is Don Coyote, D-O-N-C-O-Y-O-T-E. And to tell us the story behind today's code and where it came from are Jamie and Robin, two of the expert caretakers at the Southwest Wildlife Conservation Center. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you. First off, would you mind introducing yourselves a little bit and tell us a little bit about the Southwest Conservation Center and how you got started? Hi there, my name is Jamie Haas and I'm the Education Coordinator here at Southwest Wildlife Conservation Center. And my name is Robin Mole, and I'm the Education Specialist at Southwest Wildlife Conservation Center. Southwest Wildlife was started by one woman. Her name is Linda Searles. She is our fearless leader and our executive director. And she started Southwest 27 years ago, so in 1994. Why, do it, why did it start, you may ask? Well, it all started because of a little coyote. So coyotes dig dens, they have their families in their den. Even this time of year, particularly, they have families in their den. And this particular coyote family, they actually dug their den in a farmer's field, unbeknownst to him. So he did not know it was there. So he was minding his own business and he's preparing his field for his crops when he plowed right over the entrance or the door to that den. Unfortunately, the whole family uh, died inside except for one very lucky coyote who was topside. Well, this farmer was a very bright farmer and he realized that it was a wild animal and he couldn't keep it. So he gave it to the lady down the road who went, this is a wild animal, can't keep it. Several hands later, it ended up in Linda's hands and Southwest Wildlife was born. Our short mission is uh, rescuing wildlife one life at a time. Our longer mission, uh, what we like to call our three R's are we rescue, we rehabilitate and we release Southwest Wildlife that have been injured, orphaned, or displaced. And when we think about that little coyote pup, first of all, what do you call the guy that got 
get Southwest started, you call him Don, Don Quixote or Don Coyote, and he actually lived to the ripe old age of 20. Now, Don was not injured, but he was orphaned, no more mom and dad, and he was displaced, meaning he did not end up where he started. So Southwest has 10 acres. It sounds like a lot of land, and, uh, but at this time we have eight mountain lions. We have five black bears. We have uh, 10 Mexican gray wolves, and we have all the other usual suspects. Uh, coyotes, javelina, deer, foxes, bobcats, and amongst others. What you would see if you came on tour would be our sanctuary residents. Those are animals that can't do that final R, which are released. Would you give us a little bit more detail or information about some of the animals that we're gonna see there? Two of our favorites also happen to be uh, more of our longtime residents here. One, the first one up is, is Tocho, the big mountain lion. He tragically came from uh, a situation where poachers killed his mother. They actually took him before he was even weaned. So he's really, really, really small. And he, they sold him to two young men in Tucson who knew that it's against the law to keep wild animals as pets. So they uh, quickly ushered him into a shed with no natural sunlight of any kind. Mm -hmm. And then probably the number one issue with keeping wild animals as pets, other than it's really, it's illegal and not a good idea at all. They don't make good pets is that, um, they really don't know what their food requirements are. Uh, it's very important to have animals uh, be fed the proper diet, just like we tell our kids you need to eat your fruits and vegetables, grow up big and strong. Um, the equivalent, uh, depending if you're a carnivore, omnivore, herbivore, is important for animals as well. Of course, uh, mountain lions are ambush hunters, so when they kill their prey, they'll eat it all. So they'll, there's bone, sinew, cartilage, and marrow. And these boys, we can only assume that we're feeding them hamburger. Well, our hamburger is missing all of that sinew, cartilage, bone, and marrow. Uh, lucky for Tocho, he was confiscated. Um, unfortunately for him, the damage was done. Three out of his four legs were broken, and he had a number of other broken bones as well. And it is actually called metabolic bone disease, and it certainly affected him where his bones is concerned are concerned. And he's been with us since 2005, so he is coming up. He is 16 now, and uh, mountain lions can make it up to 20. So he's uh, he's a senior boy. He's living the life right now. He has baby television to watch, meaning he gets to watch uh, the young mountain lions right next to him. Um, the nice thing about that is they're actually not in his space. So when they decide to rough house, he gets to watch them rough house amongst themselves. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he is he's been with us a long, long time, and I. I feel like I've grown up with him. Actually, it's it's uh, he he's really um, a well loved animal and one of our spots are animals. Mm -hmm. And the other one um, is actually probably Jamie's favorite, yeah. which is Heavenly. Don't tell the others. Yes, <laughs> Heavenly is a black bear, uh, not an Arizona black bear, but uh, he is. Uh, we like to say he has a girly name, but he's all boy, and he's a big five hundred pound. Black bear. He came from the Heavenly Ski area in Lake Tahoe. Black bears cubs stay with their mothers somewhere around 17 to 19 months old, 19 months old, to learn foraging skills. And if they lose their mother early in that process, then they usually generally are uh, deemed the nuisance animal. 
black bears are born either in January or February. They're not born currently in any other calendar month of the year. So he was found in March of 2013, struggling at uh, 49 pounds. Uh, clearly living off peanut butter sandwiches from the skiers. They actually captured him and fattened him up to about 100 pounds uh, and then released him 25 miles from the ski area. Well, our bear knew where to get the goods and he went right back to the ski area. He so, decided to play yogi. <laughs> just like yogi. Not your average bear, for sure. And he actually proves that every single day when he's here. Over the course of times, I've always been asked, well, who do you think is the smartest animal on property? And hands down, it is, uh, it's, it's the bears. And we know that because we're starting to train our resident animals uh, to voluntarily participate in their animal care. Heavenly can actually sit on command. He can stand on command. He can lie down on command. He can give his right paw. He can give his left paw. He can open his mouth on command so that we can see his teeth if he has any abscesses or needs to visit the vet dentist. But the last thing they've worked on is he actually will place his foreleg in a sleeve so that we can draw blood. Completely less stress on us, completely less stress on him. And so he has learned all that in just under two years. Uh, it's just been eye-opening for us. It's been really um, wonderful. Our animals don't work for free though, right? Correct. We compensate them fairly. <laughs> yes. It's not a myth. Bears really do like sweet foods. They're high in glucose and calories. So when they eat something sweet, it gives them more energy longer. But energy aside, um, they love sweet snacks like peanut butter and honey. But the very special food that Heavenly works for is blueberry pie filling straight out of the can. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, but I would follow commands for pie. You know what? Blueberry pie. I have to say I'd be right there with Heavenly. <laughs> In so many ways, we're still learning about how animals communicate with each other. Are there any different behaviors that you see as their keepers uh, that they produce or sounds that they make uh, that tell you how they're feeling in a certain moment that you've kind of picked up that, oh, when they do this, they mean that? Uh, yeah, um, one of the really obvious ones is you can see all of the bobcats rubbing themselves all over um, this rock that we place in the enclosure that has a little camera in it. What they are doing is they are rubbing their scent glands and all of, you know, really all of themselves all over this thing that doesn't quite smell like them. Um, scents are something that are really interesting for felines, bobcats in particular. So one of the ways that we help them avoid stress behaviors um, is to give them what we call enrichment. And what that is, is uh, special fun activities that animals can do um, that help them display behaviors that they naturally would in the wild, but they might not living in an enclosure in a sanctuary environment. So for the bobcat, they really have a lot to do with scent. It's very exciting for them. So you could see in their purring and rubbing their faces all over um, the new item, the new exciting thing in their enclosure. You can tell that they're really interested and um, excited, what do you think you could say, that there's some new thing to rub their face on. <laughs> One of the other ways they communicate is through, uh, and we were very happy they didn't do this, is they urinate on things. That's uh, love tar. So um, we, we were all sort of going, please don't pee on it. And they did 
they were they were definitely in the in the rubbing um, mode. But they will actually uh, when they get fed, they might mark their food. Um, they actually are very fond of marking each other all the time. Although they live each with each other, there's six of them in this particular enclosure. And for some reason, they feel compelled to mark each other as well. Uh, and they don't seem to mind it for either. Uh, on tour, it's kind of exciting. Uh, as a guide, we're on the closest to them. So I have to be mindful of my shoes. But they're marking like this fence is mine. Like don't come, don't come in yeah. here anymore. Mm -hmm. So cats are primarily scent, and coyotes are primarily vocal. The scientific name for them is Canis latrans, which literally means barking dog, right? And they're they're colloquially called American song dog or something. I've always loved that term. Um, but they are known for their howling and their yipping and their barking sounds. Um, scientists have currently identified 11 different vocalizations for the coyote, and we hear a lot of them all the time. Uh, one cool thing to note is coyotes are primarily hunting on their own. If you're going to catch a mouse, you're not going to ring the dinner bell and announce to everyone that you have uh, found food that you would not like to share. <laughs> so instead, um, they are primarily greeting and communicating with each other, seeing how many other coyotes are around, if there's any danger, um, or if they're just, you know, kind of seeing, surveying how the evening is going with everyone, so to speak. Um, so yeah, they, they are primarily a vocal communicator. They do it a lot here. We joke that we call them the gossipers of the world. It's uh, always quite yipping and yapping and all our wolves. But if the wolves start it, undoubtedly the coyotes will, start, will chime in as well. Now with animal species like wolves and coyotes and foxes and bears and even mountain lions, they exist all over the United States and all over the world in different variations. Are there any particular adaptations that you have seen that these animals have developed specifically to live in the Sonoran Desert? Foxes in, in, in particular, a lot of foxes are nocturnal, so that's, that's one of the ways they can keep cooler. Uh, a lot of animals, particularly because it gets so hot here, will shift when they're going to hunt. So even a nocturnal animal might move that a little bit depending on the climate at the time. But when we think about the dead of summer and the 100 degrees, you know, nocturnal certainly helps. They dig burrows in the ground so it's nice and cool down there. Uh, they have tend to have bigger ears so there's um, heat displacement through the veins there's, uh, that are on the really close to the surface of the ears. Our wolves have exactly the same thing. The unique thing, the unique thing about kit foxes is, um, yes, they can drink water and they still have a water requirements, but they um, really uh, get a lot of their moisture from whatever they eat on a daily basis. They have longer legs, um, although they still seem very short, but in relationship to the rest of their body, they have longer legs, which also help uh, uh, keep them cooler. Uh, they shed, so you know, they just like your dog, you'll have a thicker coat during the winter, certainly less during the summer. Um, uh, coyotes here will stand in their water a lot. You know, if you just stand in your pool and the mirror just up to your foot, if that's in water, it cools the rest of your, your body. Fascinating. And you mentioned uh, with the environment and the climate, uh, so many desert animals have lost 
habitat due to human construction as the Phoenix metro area grows. How have you seen some of these animals adapt to the greater presence of humans in the environment and how has it affected their ecosystems? That's a big question. It is. <laughs> um, one of the main ways, so backing it up a little bit, when Robin mentioned during um, her introduction that when an animal loses their habitat, it's called displacement. You see this happening also with wildfires and things like that. An animal is smart enough to know when their home is going away, but they can't check into a hotel or go to grandma's house when they lose their home. They have lost it. So now they have the Herculean task of finding a new one. This can be challenging. They are becoming increasingly adapted to living in urban areas. And what that means is that coyotes, bobcats, raccoons, skunks, possums, I could go on, um, are pretty used to living in human habitated areas. Um, you'll see on the outskirts, so wherever the habitat of humans is pushing right up against the habitat of wildlife. So if there's mountain ranges or big washes nearby, um, javelina sightings are pretty common, coyote sightings are pretty common, because um, really what these animals need are food, water, shelter, and space. And if they have all four of those things um, met in the particular way that um, their species needs, they don't need a whole lot. Um, they can get food out of garbage cans. They can eat. I mean, in ideal situation, they're eating a lot of pests that you don't want around, like snakes and scorpions and um, roof rats and things like that, too. So as we are moving into wilder areas, animals are getting used to us being around. So you're probably going to see them more often. Yeah. Now, if people want to find safe ways to deter wild animals from coming into their home space, perhaps to protect pets and things, is mm -hmm. there anything that they can do? Noise is your friend. If you are not, uh, you know, if you don't want a bobcat family or a bobcat hopping your wall and, and, and lying, you know, drinking out of your water feature or lying in your center block wall, <laughs> you know, uh, animals have long memories for good things, habituation of feeding animals, they also have long memories for, for, for bad things. So by just making, you know, they've set up in your backyard as quiet. Your job, don't make it quiet. So pots and pans, um, air horns, I would, you know, once we get back to sporting events, <laughs> the air horn, <laughs> just let her rock. Uh, if you can safely get to your hose, put it on jet, jet them off the wall. These are all non-lethal ways. They're going to look at you and go, well, that just was not very nice. I'm moving on. <laughs> the exact opposite to that, have my opinion about glue strips and putting them down there because they don't just catch a scorpion. They catch mm -hmm. the bird that's going to eat the scorpion and the snake that's going to eat the scorpion or the bird. And um, you could have the whole, the whole, the whole blue chain on, your, on the glue strip. Society hasn't caught up with with that kind of thing. They just, they don't want to coexist with it. They want to get rid of it. But they hunt in the desert, but there's a beautiful 
uh, neighborhood in the desert, now joined by a cinder block wall and between the cinder block wall. So I just refer to that as the animal highway. They hop up there and they can look in people's backyards and they can see, look for water sources, food sources, shade sources. What does that sound like? Food, water, shelter, space. There we go. How do you determine whether an animal is able to be released to the wild again? You mentioned that Heavenly, they tried to release and it wasn't something that was a sustainable option with him. Uh, I like to say curiosity killed the cat. It also completely kills the release as well. So we do our very best when the when the babies come in to, to not talk. We even have sound machines. I call them Brooks Brothers. We have every sound machine from Battling Brook to Rainy Nights to... Yeah, the birds chirping. And so we don't we don't talk. We have uh, gowns, we have gloves, we've gone extra mile to have a mask on. We then for very fortunately, and what has made a big difference with our uh, release rate is our foster animals. So we have a foster program. Some of our resident animals uh, are fosters. And I like to say we've chosen really wisely. Um, they're no fans of ours, and they communicate that very effectively to the babies that um, people are bad and you better stay away from them. If we were animal care and determining whether an animal is, is um, prepared to survive on its own, if we walk in and it's greeting us at the gate going, hey, what you got for me? That's not, that animal is, is deemed unreleasable. We, yeah. we need, so again, curiosity killed the cat. It also completely kills the release. They have to have, want nothing to do with us. Yeah. And again, the, the fosters are really great because Bobcat fosters, we place a really high platform. You, the moment you walk into their enclosure, she is hissing and growling and she's making it in no certain terms. You are not welcome in their enclosure. And the babies are tucked in behind her going, I'm not looking, I'm not looking, I'm not looking. And the coyotes, they're, because they have the ability to dig dens in, in our enclosures, they can go under the house that we provide. Uh, I've walked in there and to feed and clean, and I know that this um, male coyote, because in the coyotes, both the females and males rear um, the young, I walked in there, and there were supposed to be seven, and I couldn't find one of them. He's in there just walking back and forth, and he's made it very clear to the to, his pups in there. I want to see a tear, a, a tail tip, an ear tip, or an eyeball. <laughs> yeah. And mm-hmm. sure enough, you can't find them. The other thing is because we have an over, we have an abundance of food here all the time. We have an abundance of mice and rats. Second guessing ourselves, where those kittens can can hunt sounds terrible, but toss in a mouse and see their skills, watch their skills, whether they go. Oh, that was nice. Uh, or they're like, yeah, I gotta have that. What role does research have in the job of a conservation facility like the SWCC? That's a really good question. Um, On one hand, it's important for our animal care teams, as well as our medical staff, our clinic staff, and volunteers to be up on the latest methods of caring for animals, um, we mentioned the medical training. That's pretty cutting edge. Not, not everywhere is doing that. It also is important to know what the best rehab, the new techniques, um, what other people are doing. So research is really important um, when you're actually caring for wildlife. Science 
is always learning. So in those sorts of fields, research is very important. Also, um, there are two pillars of our organization that are really research focused uh, specifically. One of them is conservation medicine. And this is an emerging field, human doctors, animal doctors, and environmental scientists. So people who study um, ecosystems, ecology, um, climate, all those sorts of things. All of those people are working together to see how the health of humans, the health of animals, and the health of the planet are all intertwined. It's easy to forget that humans are animals too, and that we are also a species living on this planet in the environment. So the way that we are interacting with it has a lot of effects that we don't necessarily understand. We've never taken the time to assess um, some of the things that you we're talking about like, what is this habitat expansion doing to the ecosystem? Like, what are what's the domino effect that happens after that? If we, like right now, um, we are a fiscal sponsor for a bobcat research study in Tucson. Um, they're basically just surveying the population down there. If you don't have a baseline, you don't really know what's happening with the population. Um, so that's a couple of ways that we participate in that. Um, the other way is that we are part of the species survival program for the Mexican gray wolf. Um, this wolf uh, was the most endangered North American wolf for a long time. Uh, right now, it is currently the second most endangered wolf in North America. Uh, the first is the red wolf. But the Mexican gray, uh, the conservation effort started in 1976 when there were only seven wolves left. It started with seven wolves. Now, luckily, amazingly, after all of these years of uh, conservation efforts from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Arizona Game and Fish, New Mexico Game and Fish, and as well as a bunch of organizations like Southwest Wildlife, there are now 186 Mexican gray wolves in the wild in Arizona and New Mexico, and there are more in Mexico as well. They have a very small habitat, which is one of the reasons that it was so easy for them to almost go extinct. We are a holding facility for them. We don't do any breeding on site here at Southwest. Uh, so to fit into the species survival program, we are a place where the wolves can live. But we are, all of this program is under the jurisdiction of um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We have 10 Mexican gray wolves right now. So, and research is a huge part of that as well. It's an amazing story. And to see just how much they've grown and been able to come back is truly an inspirational story. Anything that you would like the surrounding community to know about either Arizona Wildlife or the SWCC? We joke that we call Southwest Wildlife Arizona's best kept secret. So we have, although being here since 1994, 27 years, we still have neighbors down the block going, I never knew you were here. So Southwest is a totally nonprofit, no state or federal funding. So through grants, through generous donors, through our educational tours and school groups, um, that is really how we fund Southwest Wildlife. Uh, it is uh, just two numbers to throw out there. It's probably $14,000 per month for food, 16,000 for medical, and then you have all those other expenses as well. So it really is uh, easily a $1.5 million operation per year. 
So without visitors, we would not, we would really not be able to do what we currently are, are doing. Wildlife and the message to people, um, they're here to stay. And my PowerPoint pr uh, project's called Meet the Neighbors, because they are here and their their uh, urban wildlife is here to stay. When we eat, what we eat, where we eat, I'm going to happy hour today. I'm going to, you know, a particular restaurant. Um, that's on me, but wildlife are opportunistic hunters. They never know when their next meal is going to come, mm -hmm. and it may very well be in your backyard. Improvised potty breaks are really, really important, mm -hmm. and it isn't just mammals. There's raptors out there as well. There are a couple of things that I would like to leave you with, just some advice on what to do if you see wildlife in the wild in their natural habitat. Remember, it's very important that you do not touch you do not feed, do not pick up wildlife. Um, this is for their safety as well as yours. Wildlife make terrible pets. Our doggies and kitties have thousands of years of domestication to give them traits that make them good pets. Like they wanna snuggle on the couch with us and they want scratches behind their ears. Wildlife do not want that. So make sure that you are giving them plenty of space and if you see a wild animal, just enjoy it from a safe distance. Don't approach them or anything like that. And we hope to have you out uh, to visit Southwest Wildlife Conservation Center right here in Scottsdale, Arizona. If you're feeling inspired to take a walk on the wild side and explore the world around us in your own backyard, we recommend some of these titles from our collection. The Glitter in the Green, In Search of Hummingbirds by John Dunn. Hummingbirds are a glittering, sparkling collective of over 300 wildly variable species. For centuries, they've been revered by indigenous Americans, coveted by European collectors, and admired worldwide for their unsurpassed metallic plumage and immense character. Yet these small creatures exist on a knife edge, fighting for survival in boreal woodlands, dripping cloud forests, and subpolar islands. They are perhaps the ultimate embodiment of evolution's power to carve a niche for a delicate creature in even the harshest of places. Traveling the full length of the hummingbird's range, from the cusp of the Arctic Circle to near Antarctic islands, acclaimed nature writer John Dunn encounters birders, scientists, and storytellers in his quest to find these beguiling creatures, immersing us in the world of one of Earth's most charismatic bird families. The Puma Years, a memoir by Laura Coleman. Presenting the story of the author's journey in the Amazon jungle, this tells the story of where she fell in love with a magnificent cat who changed her life. Laura was in her early 20s and directionless when she quit her job to backpack in Bolivia. Fate landed her at a wildlife sanctuary on the edge of the Amazon jungle, where she was assigned to a beautiful and complex puma named Waira. Wide-eyed, inexperienced, and comically terrified, Laura made the scrappy make-do camp her home, and in Waira, she found a friend for life. They weren't alone, not with over a hundred quirky animals to care for, each lost and hurt in their own way. From a pair of suicidal bra-stealing monkeys, a frustrated parrot desperate to fly, to the pig with a wicked sense of humor. The humans, too, were cause for laughter and tears. There were animal whisperers, committed staff, wildly devoted volunteers, handsome heartbreakers, 
and a machete-wielding prom queen who carried Laura through. Most of all, there was the jungle, lyrical and alive, and there was Wyra, who would ultimately teach Laura so much about love, healing, and the person she was capable of becoming. Set against a turbulent and poignant backdrop of deforestation, the illegal pet trade, and forest fires, the Puma Years explores what happens when two desperate creatures in need of rescue find one another. The hidden life of trees, what they feel, how they communicate, discoveries from a secret world by Peter Wollenben. How do trees live? Do they feel pain or have awareness of their surroundings? Research is now suggesting that trees are much more capable than we've ever known. Wollenben shares his deep love of woods and forests and explains the amazing processes of life, death, and regeneration that he's observed in the woodland and the amazing scientific processes behind the wonders of which we are blissfully unaware. Drawing on groundbreaking new discoveries, he presents the science behind the secret and previously unknown lives of trees and their communication abilities. He describes how these discoveries have informed his own practices, and after a walk through the woods, you'll never look at trees the same way again. Zooburbia, Meditations on the Wild Animals Among Us by Ty Moses. To be alienated from animals is to live a life that is not quite whole, contends nature writer Ty Moses in Zooburbia. Urban and suburban residents share our environments with many types of wildlife. Squirrels, birds, spiders, lizards, deer, and coyotes. Many of us crave more contact with wild creatures, and we recognize the small and large ways animals enrich our lives, yet we don't notice the animals already around us. Zuberbia reveals the reverence that can be felt in the presence of animals and shows how that reverence connects us to a deeper, better part of ourselves. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that you had a fantastic time and that you learned something new about some of the animals that we share our desert home with. I absolutely did, and I'm going to be checking out some of these animals in the future. Okay, everybody, that's it for me today. Thank you so much for joining us. It was fantastic to have you here. I hope you have a great rest of your summer. Happy reading, everybody. Thank you for listening to Shelf Logic. Make sure to hit subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. Follow us on social media where we are at MCLDAZ.